Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the podcast, I welcome Marianne Williamson. Uh, Marianne is a New York Times bestselling author, spiritual thought leader, dynamic public speaker, and former Democratic candidate for President of the United States. Her latest book, A Politics of Love, a handbook for a new American revolution, presents a completely alternate approach to politics, away from polarization, divisiveness, and fear, and toward cooperation, compassion, and peace. In our conversation, we explore the overlap between politics and spirituality and how many of the movements to expand rights have been anchored in spiritual principles. We discuss the need for transformational leadership in an era that is characterized by the rescinding of rights, specifically for minorities and women. And we talk about how internal change produces external change. And Marianne talks about her experience running for president, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, on a personal note, in 2018, when Commune was barely a glimmer in my eye, I called Marianne and asked her if she would film a course for this platform that didn't exist, the new need friends. And Marianne has always been a friend. Her heart says yes. The first course Commune ever produced was with Marianne. And since then, we've shot nearly 120. Not long thereafter, Marianne decided to run for president. We shot her announcement video in our humble little Commune Topanga kitchen. Again, the new need friends. As she said to me, Jeff, we start things together. I am grateful for her friendship. And if you're interested in the connection between relationships and spirituality, whether those relationships are romantic or with our parents, siblings, children, friends, or coworkers, then be sure to check out Marianne's commune course titled Relationships, 
you can take the first four days for free by signing up at onecommune.com slash relationships. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. So without further delay, I present to you Marianne Williamson. Great to be with you. Always great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, you always uh, seem to christen everything that I do because this is the very first live interview that's ever happened in this physical space. Oh, well, I'm honored. (laughs) This is exciting. We have a, we begin things together. And also when I did that, when we did that video announcing my exploratory last time, that was you and me together. So I have the same thing with you, that things begin with you. Well, the new need friends. (laughs) <laughs> and so, we, and it's funny because we yeah. only come come together for important things. Yes, we don't have chit chat or casual. But if it's something <laughs> important, isn't that interesting? It is true, and I, I feel like we never really miss a beat. We there's yeah. no um, there's a lot no, understood. Uh, yeah, there's no like oat milk or almond milk. It's <laughs> just the coffee, right? Um, Without laughing, anyone. <laughs> so uh, um, I want to probe this bigger idea of transformational leadership. And um, I'm going to start with a quote, which you will recognize. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Of course, we know that that was Martin Luther King. Although they say that he was actually quoting someone else's. There's there's a lot of lack of clarity about that particular line because Howard Thurman, so who knows, but King certainly said it. The, this idea that over time we seem to correct to better align the human condition with our highest principles. That is a lofty and optimistic idea. And I want to stress test it a little bit because we are at a very thorny inflection point. And we spent some time together yesterday up in Topanga and, uh, and you brought this up. So I want, I want to probe at it. And I'll, we'll start with kind of the very timely and specific. And then we can move out to the timeless and broad. So first, I want to timestamp this conversation a little bit because we're going to talk a little bit probably about uh, um, specific events. So we're here. It's September 30th, 2022. So on September 14th, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who was named Masa Amini um, was traveling from where she lives in Kurdistan, which is a a province in Iran. And and she was traveling to Tehran, the capital. And she exited uh, a subway station with her brother. And a very horrific set of um, things occurred. So can you describe a little bit of what happened to this woman? She was approached by the Iranian quote-unquote morality police. Although I don't know why I'm putting quotes around it, they're the morality police. And her hijab was not on correctly. Or maybe, I'm not sure, I don't know if it was that it wasn't on correctly or is that it was a headscarf but not full covering. 
for whatever reason, they felt that she did not live up to the standards of how they felt an Iranian woman should present herself in public, even though she was with her brother, because you have to be in public with them, right? Um, they beat her horribly, put her in a coma. She was in a coma for three days, and then she died. This was like the spark that lit the extraordinary fire of protest that is going on in Iran now. Um, Persian culture is brilliant, historically brilliant, but also historically free. I mean, there was a democratic uh, leader, democratically elected leader, uh, who in 1953, I think, was overthrown by American CIA and British forces uh, because he had the audacity to say that he felt that Iranian oil should belong to the Iranians and not to British Petroleum. Uh, we at that time instated the Shah of Iran, who was a bad guy, but he was our bad guy, um, the whole imperial king thing with the beautiful empress, etc. But he was, in fact, a brutal dis dictator. They thought that the dangers to his reign uh, were the fascists and the communists, not realizing and surprising not only him, but also surprising the CIA, surprising all Western intelligence. The real threat came from the growing uh, Islamic fundamentalists led at that time by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And they then um, staged the Iranian revolution in 1979. Under the Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, regime, and then his successors as well, um, the rights of women have been um, aligned with his strict interpretation of, of Islam, which um, has kept many women in um, limited conditions, including the wearing of the um, accoutrements and, um, that, that are determined by that, by that government. When this particular killing occurred of this 22-year-old young woman, this obviously sparked a fire. It was like the spark that lit the bonfire, but clearly these protests uh, represented energy that had been accumulating. And um, I'm in total awe of the bravery that is being shown by women taking their headscarves off, even uh, cutting their hair. Uh, many have been killed. Uh, the internet has been completely cut off, so we can only get very little information but we know people have been killed. This is a very brutal regime, very violent regime. We can only imagine what is happening, particularly some of these young people, the fear of parents and children. It's, it's extraordinary, and um, let us pray. The one thing I will mention, however, is that Americans should keep in mind um, what happened to someone like Elijah McClain and other unarmed black men in police custody in the United States over the last, just even over the last two years, is not something we should fail to recognize um, it, for its severity, which is not totally unlike what happened to this young woman in Iran. Yeah, in fact, there may be a parallel there to make of that this woman, Masa, um, this could be kind of Iranian's George Floyd moment, if you will. Well, um, yes, you know it's so it's so important when we when we talk about these things, because on one hand, yes, you're right, and on one hand, you're also correct that uh, the way certain protesters have been treated has not been has not been fair, has not been just, has not been nonviolent. At the same time, I don't think we can compare, nor nor should we even go close to that, uh, the response of the U.S. government to BLM 
um, to the response of the Iranian government to what is happening yeah. in Iran. Yeah, absolutely. That's a distinction that, that has to be made. And I mean, I think we've had now 85 to 90 people killed among those protesters in, in Iran. Um, and that's just what's being reported. And of course, so what, yeah, what we even knows. can know. And but these protests have now scaled across the country. I mean, they're in you know eighty five, ninety, ninety five cities across Iran, and it is just absolutely breathtaking and inspirational um, what many of these women, as you say, what they're doing. I mean, given the circumstances and and what's at stake, just even to yeah. walk out the door is to risk being killed, beaten, tortured. Yeah. And and now, to be fair, I mean, now men, there are some men yeah, that so are Yes, the men joined. are showing up as well, but the women but, are leading this. That's right. And, um, and I think the point that you make, which is sort of where I'm going here a little bit, which is that, you know, Persian culture was this, like, effervescent um, intellectual uh, culture. And... Brilliant people. Brilliant. And as you say, um, and still, you know, in Iran, most of the college students are women, um, even under this repressive regime, because there is actually a tradition there of women being part of intellectual society. We don't think about that because many of us, at least, you know, I grew up in the hostage crisis and with the with the uh, you know supreme leader Khomeini coming into power, and that's kind of how how I viewed that country really throughout my my political adult consciousness. But I guess what I'm saying here is that we are very accustomed to the expansion of rights and not the contraction of rights, and you know there are. And you speak so eloquently about America's ability to self-correct over our history. Um, and it, but it is naive to think th- that in this country um, that we will continue on a trajectory of expansion of rights because what we saw this summer with the Dobbs decision for example, was patently a contraction. We're not living in an era of the expansion of democratic rights. We are definitively uh, living in an era of a constriction of democratic rights. The Voting Rights Act from the 1960s was an expansion of rights. This was gutted in 2010 by the John Roberts Supreme Court, which has led to a constriction of rights, Uh, what you just mentioned with... um, uh, the repeal, the essential repeal of, of Roe v. Wade. We're living at a time of a constriction of of um, rights. We have people in government who are talking about um, uh, trying to limit and constrict the right of gay people, uh, even now. So, um, unfortunately, the trajectory of self-correction, the trajectory of expansion of rights, as represented by abolition, as represented by the women's suffrage movement, as represented by um, uh, the civil rights movement, we're now in a period of contraction. We're not in a period of expansion. And um, I think we all need to get that. Uh, and the really scary part is that there's actually no guarantee that we will move back into expansion. The system um, that is um, intent on 
that constriction and contraction. Um, these are institutional forces which put the primacy of property rights uh, over democracy. Um, as, as was said by an economist, uh, James, Bu um, I can't remember his first name, Buchanan, who was then funded by the Koch brothers. He said the only way to guarantee the primacy of property rights is if we put democracy in chains. So there's a very intentional effort to constrict our democratic rights in order that the entire neoliberal unfettered capitalism, unregulated capitalism, property rights above safety, security, health, well-being of people, animals, and planets. Their uh, intent is for that agenda to be so codified in our laws and in our institutions that it would take a kind of revolution to change that. We certainly are experiencing what I might call a tyranny of the minority. Yes, we are. And that was engineered uh, in some, in many ways as a, as a check and a balance within our system of government. Well, wait a minute. The, the founders wanted to protect the rights of the minority. They, right. they did not intend Fair to enough. create a tyranny of the minority. I think they'd be horrified. But definitely, as you're saying, their, their intent was to protect the minority. They didn't know what the minority was going to do once the minority got in power, how they were going to tyrannize the majority, if at all possible, which is exactly what has occurred. Yeah, well, what I'm specifically referring to is, for example, if you look at like how representational government is apportioned in the Senate, for example, where we have, I, I believe, more or less, we have a 50-50 split, but that those 50 Democratic senators represent 40 million more people than the Republican senators. California versus South Dakota. I mean, it's outrageous. Yeah. So built in to that system is a, a, an inequity in terms of how many people it takes to represent, how, how many people have one representative, essentially, speaking for them. And now we have all of these legal means by which to perpetuate this inequity. So if you look at gerrymandering, for example, it's not that it's illegal at this juncture. I mean, courts are ruling on how certain uh, state legislative bodies are carving things up. But what is, seems to be quite disturbing and scary is that this... Um, this disproportionate, this unrepresentative government is being written in to our laws. Absolutely. And of course, it's not just the gerrymandering. It's also the Citizens United decision, which gave uh, corporate power unlimited um, permission to flood our election season so that you know, just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's not a crime against our democracy. So our Congress is now a legalized system of bribery. Yes, it's legal, uh, but it has, it has, for all intents and purposes, given a, almost a mortal blow to our democracy. Our representative democracy is based on the idea that the, the representatives in Congress would represent their constituents. There's no overriding um, motivation to represent your 
represent your constituents if your real power is derived not from their vote so much as by the money of the donors that can either support you and or should you not toe the line so support your opponents that you have no chance of re-election or of election so the real voice of power in our society today is money particularly dark money uh, the very richest among us um uh, corporate power among us and as as Lewis and and this of course itself is fortified by the basic financial inequity of this massive transfer of power and money over the last 40 years into the hands of very few people that's why people say we're not a functioning democracy at this point because for all intents and purposes we're not so i i think the point here for me uh, listening to you is we need to go beyond you know this could happen we need to go beyond you know we're at the risk of no this is happening now. And I think that's a psychological shift that all of us need to make um, in order to find that appropriate sense of urgency um, and commitment and motivation and conviction to do something about it. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time and we're six inches from the cliff right now. Yeah, I mean, nothing uh, illustrates our, our teetering on the precipice more than climate, for example. Yes. And, and that is a very... Um, kind of tangible uh, way for people to experience things. Um, and it's been happening for quite some time. So, But it's the same problem, yeah. isn't it? Because if you actually look at polls, the vast majority of Americans are, we're decent people. I mean, we're as dignified and decent as anywhere else if you actually look at what the polls say, a little bit left of center. And the American people have wanted the protection of the environment. They've made that clear. Let's not forget, Jimmy Carter in the 1970s had uh, solar panels on the on oh, the roof yes. of the White House. Yeah. And the, his one of his first acts uh, on the part of uh, Ronald Reagan was to remove those solar panels. However, the money, the billions and billions of dollars represented uh, by Chevron and every other fossil fuel extraction industry, big oil um, has more power in Congress than do you and I. They hear from us every two years, they hear from us every four years, they hear from the lobbyists, from the insurance companies, from the pharmaceutical companies, from the uh, from the big food, uh, big ag, uh, chemical companies, gun manufacturers, defense contractors, and big oil every hour of every day. These industries literally have two and three lobbyists for every congressperson and senator. So the people are this peripheral thing. And the status quo is not going to interrupt itself. It will not disrupt itself. If we are to disrupt the level of corruption that exists now, it's going to have to come from the people. Yeah. And this is where I'm heading because when I look at seismic changes across culture and, um, and I go back to the you know, the, the Indian fight for independence against Britain or the civil rights movement here uh, in the United States or the toppling of apartheid in, in South Africa. Um, those changes, those transformations within society didn't happen from within inside the systems and structures that were, let me rephrase that, that there was something bigger, there was some motivating force that got people to step into that conviction, first of all, and the leaders of those movements 
were not political per se. They were transformational and their power was anchored in the spiritual in some ways. Well, absolutely. I mean, the principles of nonviolence were first articulated by Mahatma Gandhi, who said that he got a lot of his ideas from Thoreau, other transcendentalists, Walt Whitman, Emerson. It's fascinating the way ideas traverse <laughs> the globe. Right. And then uh, King um, traveled to India, studied those principles, and brought them back and applied them to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. But let's remember two things. First of all, King, who's to say he wouldn't have run for political office if the the condition in the American South regarding black people had been different? That's number one. Number two, even when you talk about apartheid, let's not leave out Nelson Mandela. He was in prison. As soon as he got right. out of prison, he did run for president of South Africa. So this, we have this kind of romantic mythology uh, about the leaders of these transformational movements. Um it is true, of course, that it came from outside the two major political parties in the United States. Abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's right. suffrage came from the women's party. And of course, uh, civil rights came from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But today, I, I think it's, I really reject the notion that electoralism doesn't matter. I don't think, I mean, so much of what is truly wrong is codified into law at this point. Mm -hmm. And no matter yeah. what we do on the outside, those laws must be changed. So I, I, I'm all for an inside-outside approach. It's outside and inside. But if we think we can leave electoral politics out of any formula for transformational change, I think that's an error. Yeah, I believe you. I I just wonder if the figure, and really what I'm doing, honestly, Marianne, um, not so subtly, is I'm backing in here to your run for presidency. Because what made it unique, well, there's a lot of things that made it unique, <laughs> first of all, um, but that you were coming at it from the outside and as a transformational leader. And you struck a very specific chord with people that, A, were looking for something new and different, that were tired with the insider baseball, but that also was anchored in a bigger vision, uh, in a vision that uh, transcended kind of the influence peddling and the misaligned incentives and the pettiness of day-to-day of -day politics and brought into it concepts that were once actually commonplace within the political and dialogue and public discourse. Concepts that, the, that might elicit an eye roll from someone who is cynical, but really speak to the hearts of people, you know, that are anchored in concepts of love and compassion. And that, for me, is what has bent the arc of history, if we really look back at those movements that inspired conviction, you know? And um, so that is what I saw in your candidacy. And I, I guess I, I ask you, what is the key there? You know, is, do we need a particular setting or a particular alignment of circumstances for a transformational leader like yourself now to go even past where you went 
in the 2020 um, election? I think that there is no less love of justice, compassion, and the ideals um, uh, for the possibilities of democracy in our generation than there were in any any other. But abolitionists were ultimately able to affect uh, political change. The women's suffragettes were after political change, as in the 19th Amendment, and they achieved it. The civil rights movement was after political change, and they achieved it in the, in the form of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Today, our problem is that we're checkmated. The system's all sewn up. You look at the... Um, the civil rights, the Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, over 200,000 people there with him. It led to change. Today, BLM, Black Lives Matter movement, is the biggest protest movement in the history of the United States. It has not led to one single legislative change. They don't care anymore. That's mm. the problem. Mm. So if a transformational leader isn't actually um, threatening them, their actual political perch, they don't even pretend anymore. They don't care. And that's why I think a lot of people are feeling so cynical and so even desperate and angry these days is that these neoliberal economic forces, which stand for the primacy of unfettered, unregulated capitalism, really it's American capitalism which has gone off the rails over the last few decades. People um, see this and they see that those forces are in complete control within the, the Republican Party they are in control over too much of the leadership of the Democratic Party, plus that leadership does what it can to suppress real progressives. You know, the leadership of the Democratic Party acts like real progressives who, let us not forget, represent, you know, what do they want? We want universal health care like in every other advanced nation, not just even advanced democracy. We want same with easy access to higher education like in every other advanced democracy. These are centrist positions in any other advanced democracy. So... The progressives at this point are treated by the Democratic leadership like we're trying to hijack the party. They hijack the party. We're Eleanor and Franklin, and they're the DuPonts and the Morgans. Hmm. So at this point, it's very difficult to, you know, and that's where the conundrum many people, including myself, have. Do you go third party? Do you work outside the political system? Or do you seek to work inside the political system? When people say to me, influence consciousness, I feel like, Consciousness has been influenced. That's not where the problem lies. People, people, I don't think it's that people don't get it. It's not what people don't get. It's what the government will not allow. That's the problem we have now. I mean, when I do look at polls for what polls are worth at this juncture, we are less divided on issues then we are led to believe. That's right, because the Democrats and the Republicans, look, no matter who who's president, Democrat or Republican, you still got a, a um, defense budget over $800 billion, even though Iraq was an extraordinary mistake and failure, even though the way we, we waged the war and the length of time we waged the war in Afghanistan was an extraordinary, spectacular failure. We're not even having a national co conversation about that. We're just giving them the same amount of money, no matter who's the Democrat, no who's the Republican. No matter, it, the real news here is not how different they are. That's a canard that they themselves, for their own purposes, create. The real issue is where they're way too much the same because when it comes to the primacy of big food, big agriculture, big pharma, uh, 
big insurance companies, fossil fuel companies, and uh, defense contractors, they're in their pockets. Are the Democrats better? Absolutely. But at this point, we can, well, we, so what we're saying then, okay, so the the Republicans represent a complete nosedive and going over the cliff. The Democrats represent a managed decline and staying six inches from the cliff. How long can that go on? We lose our democracy either way. As Louis Brandeis, the Supreme, late Supreme Court justice said, you can have large amounts of money concentrated in the hands of a very few, or you can have democracy. You cannot have both. So do you want to, you know, you want to just die now or die later? That's really kind of the way things are constructed at the moment. Um, the intervention that is necessary, intervening, disrupting the neoliberal tyranny, that's the real tyranny, um, which is the definition of fascism, by the way, is corporate power and governmental power in such type partnership. Um, it won't come from them, but it, I don't see my own conundrum is, but if you're not within that system, how deeply and significantly can you call a corrupt system on its corruption at this point from outside the system? That's the question. It's, yeah, it's a very difficult one to navigate. Um, I mean, Andrew Yang... Uh, who I know is a, a colleague and maybe friend. you would call him yeah. a friend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is um, taking a, a swing at a, at a third party. I love so. Andrew, but what swing? It, it still takes corporate money. Yes. I think the, the only swing here would be one um, that as a country, we seem to have devolved in, uh, so in a way where we can no longer agree or disagree without being disagreeable. So, you know, he and Christine Todd Whitman, I think in some ways it's very, it's more of a symbolic thing than anything else, which is like, okay, let's just pause and take a breath and see if there are some areas of common ground. And, you know, sometimes when I, when I think about, you know, the strategy that may exist, you know, kind of within the democratic party, I look at the opportunity right now with kind of the sort of Liz Cheney and over section of the Republican Party. And I was like, and I'd be like, wow, well, there's a great opportunity for the Democrats to expand their party if they could reach out to the small but, you know, significant number of Republicans that might exist within the within the Cheney and over oh, the whoa, Adam whoa, wait, Kinzinger wait, and over. Wait, Jeff. Yeah. Liz Cheney, she's great on the issue of Trump. There's no doubt about that. But she voted with Trump 95% of the it, time. Yeah. She's not becoming a Democrat. And if we try to expand to get, why do you have to expand to get uh, uh, Liz Cheney? Why aren't you just opening your arms to embrace all the young people, all the Bernie people who are naturally aligned with the Democratic Party, except you won't even let them in? Why are we trying to impress her and get her rather than get your natural base that you're just locking the doors and won't let them come in and treat them with such contempt and, and defeat them in the primaries? It's insane. Yeah. Liz I, Cheney. I get it. I, get it. I, I just, I, I get it. And I feel that there are, there's opportunity in both places. I think not every, I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, in, 
There were moderate de- there Republicans, were moderate Republicans where you could have conversations Absolutely. that were sane. And there are high-minded conservative values. Yeah. Uh, Eisenhower said the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. The free society is not where we all have to agree with each other. And free society is not one in which we assume anyone has a monopoly on truth. So that is enlightened in itself that there's mm. this, I mean, it's like life, you know? You have to be able to, in a marriage, in an intimate relationship, we got to fight because sometimes we're not going to see it the same. But if you know how to do it well and nonviolently, you sometimes come up with something better than either person had come up with by themselves. That part is true. But um, <laughs> the answer is not to try to convince uh, Liz Cheney that uh, we should have universal health care. <laughs> I think the Democratic Party needs to stand unabashedly and unequivocally, as it did when this country elected a Democratic president four times in a row. That was what the New Deal was. The New Deal then really gave us the beginnings of the uh, of of the expansion of the middle class in America after the war. Republican President Eisenhower went along with this, and it's been the neoliberalism as represented by both parties actually that has begun to um, diminish the rights and the power and the opportunities of the American middle class. Do you think everyone in America actually truly wants a democracy? I think too many people haven't even been taught the basics of what it means. We have, not only do we have the critical race theory controversies going on, people trying to ban books, et cetera, that's horrifying. But even there, the problem began earlier. 11 states in the United States don't even require... um, one semester of American civics or government or history. If you don't teach a child, this is the Bill of Rights. This is what it is. These are the 10 uh, amendments. This is what the Declaration of Independence says. This is why these things matter. If you don't learn this as a child, how do you know to be horrified as an adult when the the Bill of Rights is under assault? There are millions of Americans. They know the Second Amendment. But they don't seem to know the other not. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of Americans, I mean, when you hear what some of these MAGA people say they want, it's like, what, what, what is your problem? What, what, what are you upset about? Now, I think in 2016, the rage that people felt, we had had ever since 1980, some say even before that, we've experienced this massive transfer of wealth and opportunity into the hands of 1% of Americans. During the 1970s, the, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home if, if they chose that, and they could afford to send their kids to college. So in 2016, the rage that people felt was, was legitimized by two candidates, our, um, Donald Trump coming from an authoritarian populism, and Bernie Sanders coming from a progressive populism. And then you have this woman in the middle, Hillary Clinton, saying, let's continue with the success that we've had under Barack Obama. Millions of Americans were like, success? Lady, I'm drowning here. So that rage was going to be expressed. It was the Democratic leadership. It was the DNC that denied Americans. They admitted this in court. They denied Americans the opportunity to go with the uh, with a progressive populist. I think Bernie would have won in 2016, and I think if that were the case, Democrats would be riding high for decades. Mm. It was the DNC that did this. They didn't even give the American people an opportunity. Mm. And, I, and I think that if the DNC had not put its fingers on the 
on the scale. I'm not saying I'm sure that Bernie would have won the primary because nobody knows. But I do think this, if they hadn't put their fingers on the scale, either Bernie or Hillary would have legitimately won the primary. People would have felt okay about it. And I don't think Donald Trump would have ever been president. Hmm. And then I saw in 2020 what they did to Bernie. I mean, the system is deeply corrupt. And yes, I hope the Democrats win in, in the midterms. Yeah. Both and. The both are true. Two odd bedfellows are thrown together in this. Yeah. I mean, when I... Um, so I've had a, a number of opportunities over the last few years to kind of try to better understand um, kind of the upstream provenance of the kind of Trump enthusiasm. And I'll talk a little bit about how and why. Um, first of all, I, I, I became, um, I started to have a number of different Zoom calls with Trump voters. Wow. People that, uh, so I was writing a column associated with Commune. And in the summer of 2020, it was hard not to write about political issues. And I was over a barrel because I had to write something every Sunday, as I know you commit to writing a lot, so you, you've got to get it out. And, you know, I was trying to be thoughtful, but also express an opinion and, you know, put it through a certain lens that I felt was germane to, to commune. And inevitably, when you send something out to a million people, there's going to be people that, that have issues. Um, and, you know, I was getting a lot of critique and harsh, some harsh critique from the left, but mostly on the right. And, you know, some of the critique, because I connect, I, I, I attach my email <laughs> to these screeds. Uh, most of the, some of it was just like, you know, Trump 2020, Trump 2020, or like, you know, screw off, screw, you know, whatever. You can't do anything with that. But there were some people that were willing to engage thoughtfully. And, uh, and then I would take the time to get into some, uh, you know, repartee, if you will. And uh, eventually I, I would say, let's have a Zoom call. And plenty of people dropped off at that juncture, but plenty of people didn't. Huh. So I had about 20 across the summer of 2020, um, where and then I started devoting about three or four hours of my Monday afternoon to having these Zoom calls. And largely with Trump voters almost exclusively, and then some people on the, um, on the far left of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that felt that basically as a white man, I had n- no place in, in having an opinion at that juncture, sort of a standpoint epistemology approach to that. And basically I was like, <laughs> I know, but I write a column. <laughs> so anyways, my, the, What's more germane to our conversation here is some of the conversations that I had with people on the right. So I got to be very close and I had probably half a dozen Zoom calls with this one particular woman named Sue. She was from Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. She's every, she is a sort of quintessential portrait of uh, a single woman living in rural America whose town has been you know, shuttered up, who has been decimated by fentanyl, who is holding down two part-time jobs, one at a convenience store, one at Home Depot, raising a kid, 
And uh, with no, I mean, the only food available to her really is, is from the 7-Eleven. And so by extension, she's was quite overweight. She had uh, diabetes, so she's on insulin. She had uh, other forms of autoimmune disease, so she's on this cocktail of pharma. And she's pissed off. And what I, what I, I mean, she didn't feel privileged at all. Well, she's not. And she was angry around constantly being shamed. And, uh, and, I, and I guarantee she was not guilty, didn't feel guilty in any way of what her great-great-grandfather might have or might have not done or something. And, um, and she felt not only miserable and sick and poor and barely making ends meet, but judged. And, you know, here comes a guy um, who, A, has no moral superiority over you, <laughs> doesn't judge you, and says he's going to help you. It's, it's absolutely yeah. correct. Her rage is, is completely uh, legitimate. And it has been exacerbated by the suggestion that she is privileged and 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 so forth. Um, there is no doubt about it. It reminds me of FDR, however, saying that we would not have to worry about a fascist or a um, communist takeover, he said, as long as democracy delivered on its promises. Democracy did not deliver for that woman. Yeah. And starting with NAFTA, the trade deals... Uh, all of the energy, all of the opportunity, all of the benefits, all of the money was sucked out of that woman's town by both Demo under both Democratic and Republican uh, Republican um, administrations. And once again, going back to what I said, you're right, Trump said that, but so did Bernie. Mm -hmm. And many women like right. that, because of that, were not willing to vote for Hillary, but would have voted for Bernie. So... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, that woman is right in her, uh, she's, uh, her rage is legitimate. She has been screwed by a rigged system. The problem is that both Bernie and, and uh, Trump said it, Trump just rigged it further against her. And um, Bernie and those who agree with him and his progressive politics would unrig it. But uh, once again, it's circular. Get back now. How do we get the power to do that? Right. So when you... When you decided to run, yeah, um, you, I mean, you obviously surveyed the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> kind of didn't go down like that, actually. I right. sort of decided to run before I surveyed the landscape. <laughs> and when I surveyed the landscape, I was like, oh, shit. But I'd already, I already knew I needed to do this. So it was rather distressing once I did. Right. But I think... I don't think if I'd surveyed it first, I wouldn't have decided to run. Really? Well, what, quite seriously, what happened was I had a very strong feeling in my heart, I'm going to run for president. I called a friend of mine, Tom Hartman, whose work you might know, mm -hmm. and I said, I need to come talk to you in, Was in, in Washington. I was living in New York at the time. I said, um, I have to talk to you about something. So I went to see him in Washington, and I said, I'm running for president. Because when I first had this sense that I was running for president, I was just lifted to this. Anybody who I met is like, I'm running for president. <laughs> I'm running for president. That's all I knew. Then when I right. talked to Tom, he, he wasn't negative, 
but he was realistic. He said, you know, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. And I went, well, that's depressing. Because yeah. <laughs> like reality is like I crashed onto the rocks of uh, material reality. And it was a strange moment in my life because I, I, I was awakened suddenly, almost as in a, in a flash to what we were talking about here. And yet my conviction that I was supposed to do this was not diminished. And that began months of serious um, processing within myself. Yeah. I would say that it's fair, it's fair that you left a significant mark on that race um, and brought certain issues to the fore that wouldn't have been probed. I would say the most prominent probably was the comment on reparations in, in one of the debates because I feel that that sparked a public discourse that might have been sort of bubbling below, but now it's very central. People talk about it all the time. But wait a minute. Even there, this is an example. Once I was out of the... While I was in the race, every candidate had to speak to it. The press right. would ask them. Right. Once I was out of the race, for about five minutes, they were asked, and then they all breathed a sigh of relief because they didn't have to talk about it anymore. So now you say it's a conversation, but it's not a conversation yeah. in the rooms that matter. True. That's what a, an actual campaign does. It harnesses a conversation in a way that could conceivably be an actual disruptor, that could conceivably really inconvenience the system. True. But I do think that you brought it into the, maybe not into the right rooms, but you brought it into the living rooms. No, I did. And I, and, and as long as I was a candidate, it was in the right rooms because the yeah. right room is politicians being, being asked about these things in public forums. Yeah. My, my sense, however, is the moment is so urgent. I don't think we have that much longer that we can say, well, that's really good because you really influence the conversation. And if yeah. I do this again, I assure you, I'm not doing it just to quote unquote influence the conversation. I have too many scars inside myself. Uh, this is not something you take on. This is brutal. You don't take this on just to influence the conversation at a moment like this. Mm -hmm. Two years ago was a very different situation for me and I think for the country. You spoke very highly of um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, yes. Ardern. Yes. And uh, I've always <clears throat> been extremely impressed with her in a whole variety of different ways. And um, she has essentially instituted what I might describe as new metrics for societal success within her country. And I know that... Uh, you and I are both very fond of, of Robert Kennedy, and he has this w wonderful speech uh, about um, how we have uh, sanctified the GDP as this like metric of societal well-being. Right. You know, and he goes on, and it's an absolutely marvelous, eloquent turn of phrase. Um, her turn of phrase is was as he kind of. Um, as he talks about all of those things that are included inside of that GDP. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I think we need is a wholesale um, reevaluation of what represents actual societal success. Absolutely. And right now, so what, what neoliberal economic paradigm 
particularly so entrenched in our government, has done. It's turned everything into a commodity and every person into a consumer. And even as parents, you you try to make sure your children understand not everything is a commodity. Your highest identity is not a consumer. But you look at how these children... Just everywhere, people, we're swimming in an ocean of it. You can't turn on your computer. You can't turn on television. You can't turn on radio. You can't go anywhere that we're not being assaulted by this, this, this perspective, which makes everything into a commodity and you into a consumer. So yes, we need to, it is, it is essential. It is fundamental. It is, it, it is, it is a spawn of a, an organizing principle uh, by of our society, by which short-term profit maximization for huge multinational corporations organize our society as opposed to humanitarian and democratic values. Um, I was in New Zealand recently, and I was informed by quite a few people that it's nice that we have this romantic myth of her that is propagated on the on the international stage, yeah, but everybody enough. had a few things to say about what's really going down in New Zealand. So who knows? Yeah. Um, but definitely she has said these things, and, and I agree. Now, there was also a speech um, that the president of Colombia gave uh, just a few weeks ago at the UN that was very, very inspiring. So it, once again, when you see world leaders standing up, and discussing an alternative way to live on this earth and to live with the earth and to live in honor of our ancestors and real devotion to our descendants. It's disruptive, it's interruptive, it's an intervention. And I don't see where anything else is. It's it's our only hope. Um, As important as all these outside things are, such as unions and that regeneration is wonderful. You and I have talked and you talk publicly about regenerative agriculture, all the marvelous things. You know, this to me is the tragedy of this moment. We know what to do to turn this around. We have (laughs) the best practices. We have the geniuses in this country and around the world. But what it really will take to turn this thing around, to turn the ship away from uh, from the iceberg, this Titanic that we're on, does not create short-term corporate profits. And that's really what you're talking about there. Uh, it's, um, we, we value, it's, it's a form of idolatry. We value the money, we value the things, we value the consumer's success, the prestige, the power. And I think the majority of people get it. This is like insane. But at this point, turning the ship around will take a gargantuan effort, and it remains to be seen whether our our generation will rise up for the, to the challenge. Yeah. If you were to replace uh, the Dow Jones or the S&P 100 or the GDP <coughs> with other <coughs> metrics that might better reflect the well-being of society, what would those be? State of our children. Mm-hmm. You know, people say that the biggest c- collateral damage um, created by this neoliberalism is the, the state of the earth. I think it's the state of our children. We are, our metrics are so low in this country for the state of American children. They are the biggest collateral damage. They are not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. They have no, they're not old enough to vote, so they have no, they're not a constituency. And they are living the consequences of basically collective societal neglect and even, I would say, abuse. We have eight-year-olds in this country 
who do not attend schools where the resources uh, are there to teach that child to read. And if that child cannot learn to read by 10, 8, 10, the chances of high school graduation are drastically reduced. The chances of incarceration are drastically increased. When you and I were in college, 300,000 people incarcerated in the United States, today 2.3 million. So we're just, we're, it, it's like a body where you don't proactively cultivate your health. And then when disease comes, almost inevitably, you just create more prisons and more bombs as a kind of allopathic remedy seeking to suppress or eradicate symptoms. We need to proactively create societal health, which are do represent, as, as FDR said, you have to go beyond amelioration of stress. You have to create fundamental economic reform. You have to address a tax structure, which gives so much for whatever reason to the very, very rich and takes so much to people who cannot, from people who cannot afford it. Everybody should have universal health care. Everybody should have access to a higher education. We should do a massive transfer of resources into the direction of children 10 years old and younger. We should have fundamental police reform in this country. Look at how police are trained in this country compared to how police are trained in a place like Germany. Uh, something is so off in so many areas that, and that's why I believe in reparations, that the ship is listing so far to the side that at this point, if you were to even bring it back to any semblance of center, any semblance of, of universal availability of just what we should see as minimal opportunity, the minimum opportunity in a democracy, that will be called wild-eyed left-wing fringe, which is what FDR would be called if he were alive today. Yeah, so within those parentheses, the Department of Peace. Yes. So you have an 800, you have today over 800 billion in our defense uh, uh, budget. The State Department is now something like 40 billion. You know, war profiteering used to be a crime. Today it's an industry. After these spectacular failures of mm. Iraq, Afghanistan, not even to mention Vietnam, and we make these horrible mistakes, 7,000 U.S. soldiers killed uh, in, uh, in those two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and the, the, the most the system can do is, oops, well, that didn't go too well. Yeah, that was probably a mistake. And then they get the same amount of money next year. It never changes. We have a war economy. And as important as it is that we transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy, I think it's equally important that we transition from a war economy to a peace economy, which, hmm. by way, brings a greater return on investment. It would seem logical that one of the metrics for the success of a particular society would be peace. Yes, Yes. And by the way, there are specific principles of peace building, which when present statistically mean there will be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of conflict. This is true in a corner of a U.S. city or another corner of the world. Yeah. Number one, expanded economic opportunities for women. Number two, expanded economic opportunity, excuse me, educational opportunities for children. Number three, the reduction of violence against women. And number four, the amelioration of unnecessary human suffering. But once again, those four don't produce short-term profits immediately for these corporations whose money dominates U.S. public policy. And so when you, if you have any knowledge of history, 
you know that there is very little more dangerous than large groups of desperate people. Large groups of desperate people in Germany after World War I was the Petri dish out of which emerged the pathology, the psychosis, mass psychosis of the Nazis in Germany. Any, that's why we treated Germany well after World War II. It's why we treated you know, the Marshall Plan. That's why we treated Japan well. The large groups of desperate people, one of whom you mentioned earlier, the woman in Pennsylvania, this has been a Petri dish out of which has grown this sick, um, dysfunctional, more than dysfunctional, dangerous to our democracy, political force that could have and should have been predicted and prevented by people who were so busy creating that despair and, and, and pretending that it, where were they? Did it, they thought it didn't matter because those people didn't vote, whatever their reasons. You know, I can get money. I can get so much money from China. You know, we, 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 we have an entire system that, is, that put out its hand to the Chinese Communist Party and gave the middle finger to the workers of America. And this has been going on for decades, and both parties have been part of it. We have a mutual friend in Gabor Mate. Yes. Um, and he actually, in the, in the kind of preface or early on in his recent book, which I know... We great, both great book. Love. I read it. And he <clears throat> makes a, a, a perfect analogy where it's um, when you have this Petri dish, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the biological medium in which you grow a cell is called a culture. Yeah, fascinating. Right. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. If you uh, remember uh -huh. back to high school biology. Uh -huh, that's right. And if you were to put a bacterial cell in a healthy culture and feed it a good, good source point. of protein and nitrogen, et cetera, your expectation would be that that bacterial cell would proliferate and be a healthy, right. and grow a healthy colony. Mm -hmm. Say that that cell is an ind human individual and you fill that culture mm -hmm. with caustic and, and toxic mm -hmm. inputs, mm -hmm. you know, from food to politics to environmental toxins, social media to social media to abuse, mm -hmm. neglect. I mean, what, malignant narcissist president. Yeah. What is the expectation? Thank you. Thank you. Only the most smug, arrogant elite could think that that would not, with no knowledge of history, <laughs> the French Revolution or any other could think that that would not lead ultimately to the mob at the gates of the Bastille. <laughs> and that's why I said before, I think the only antidote to a trajectory that leads to violent revolution in this country is our willingness to wage a peaceful, nonviolent revolution. That's what JFK said. He said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. We must not continue with this neoliberal madness by which only a few Americans have easy access to health care. Only a few Americans have easy access to higher education or trade school. Only a few Americans can actually just work one job right. and, and, and make it in this country. This, this is unsustainable. It cannot go on. It's going to break one direction or the other. We are so close to the cliff. We are either going to descend into the abyss of a neo-fascist dystopia, or we are going to take a leap into, into a possibility that we have the means for, and it remains to be seen whether we have the qualities of personal leadership um, and just personal selfhood to make happen. That's the question for people like you and me. That's right. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I'm going to ask people like you 
Yeah. And others that I know, would they be with me this time? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you weren't, by the way. I don't, you, you were wonderful to me. So no, don't no, get I, me wrong with that, I, I with my comment there. I just mean that um, I keep looking on the landscape. Well, who, who is there? Who is there? Who is there? If Bernie runs again, then Bernie is there. Mm-hmm. So maybe Elizabeth is there. And that's good too. But I do feel that our community brings a whole person, holistic perspective to things that expands beyond um, anyone within the system. Not Bernie, because I think Bernie is so fantastic. Um, But, you know, when I ran for president, I would say it was 50% brutality and 50% exhilaration. I know how they treated me when I was an inconvenience. I can't imagine how they would treat me if I'm a threat. So it, I'm not naive about any of that. Um, uh, it's a very serious decision. And gauging, like you were talking for about surveying the landscape. Surveying the landscape of what is the energy here? Where, where are people? There's no one person, no hundred people that are going to turn this thing around. If we're going to turn it around, it's going to be a collective effort, a massive collective effort. And I think I'm gauging whether or not I perceive a readiness to make that effort and whether I believe my best contribution would be to be a candidate for president. Right. We have a um, dinner time ritual in my, my family with my three girls. Yeah. It's called Rosebud Thorn. So it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to for us to kind of find out what's going on in each other's lives. Wow. And it also brings us down and present and there for each other and it also has very good knock-on physiological impacts because when you're in a more parasympathetic relaxed state you have a better time digesting your food and absorbing your macronutrients. <laughs> That's a separate <laughs> podcast. But um but rose it, of course, refers to the rosiest part of something. Yeah. You know, what was effervescent and wonderful and fulfilling about something? The thorn. What, what was the most kind of pointy and, and, uh, and discomforting? Um, and then the bud is what might hold the most potential as a bud might. So what was your rosebud thorn of running for president? It was, you know, I said to you before we did the podcast, I said, imagine the Wanderlust Festival, the exhilaration that and the excitement that you and I have both experienced in our personal and professional lives, people coming together, like-minded people, discussing ideas of greater social and political and personal enlightenment, how exciting that is. And then I said, add to that that this is a presidential campaign. (laughs) That's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Really exciting. Uh, What is the highest potential that we could actually help turn the country around? Mm -hmm. What is the thorn? It's so mean. Yeah. And you're, you seem well equipped for mean spirit in this. I, you know, you do when you go through it once, you have some antibodies. 
I was talking to Nina Turner about this. You come, I was a man. However, I have to check any ego motivation that has to come from, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right this time. And when he says that, I'm going to say that, you know, I, right. I got to make sure I'm not coming from any of that either. Right. Just rely on your B cell memory and your, in your adaptive immune system. Yeah. And just don't read Twitter next time. Don't read. Yeah. The physical you know what? I didn't get sick one day because it's so exciting. On the other hand, I feel older than I did two years ago. It's, it's an. I, I wonder if that's almost like a delayed decay that came from it. But while I was doing it, actually, it was so energizing. Well, I I remember one particular day, I was in touch with you on a variety of different um, fronts, and I think I emailed you or texted you. I don't mm-hmm. remember in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you were in Iowa uh-huh. and then around lunchtime and you were in New Hampshire uh-huh. and I think maybe dinner time, and you were in South Carolina. That's and I right. was like, this woman has a different constitution than I, she's built of some other, no, other cell. You too. I tell you, <laughs> let me make this deal with you right now. Okay. Yeah. And whoever's watching this, hold them to it. If I run again, I want you to come on the road with me for a couple of days. Okay. I want you because I want to see what that's like. I, yeah. I, I know I would have to train for that particular experience. You, I think you, you, you trust me. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was working at a um, spiritual center, a church spiritual center in Detroit, and we had this incredible gospel choir and it was just incredible every Sunday. And people would say to me in LA and New York, why are you still in Detroit? And I would say, if you haven't been there on a Sunday morning, I can't explain it to you. And then they would come on a Sunday morning and they'd say, I get up. You'd be that way. You said something um, yesterday, and you'll say it better, you'll frame it better than, than I will. But before that you can make the change that you want in the world, that you have to go through a process of internal change, of self-purification. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? And and where are you within that process in yourself? Well, first of all, that is a a principle of nonviolence. I don't know if it was originally said by Gandhi or if it was a line that was then said by Martin Luther King based on nonviolence. I need to research that. But the line is... And it's considered one of the principles of nonviolent political change. Self-purification must precede direct political action. So Gandhi said that the end is inherent in the means. Normally, when we think of political activism, you're very tempted to say the end um, justifies the means. Right. Not in nonviolence. Everything we do is infused with the consciousness with which we do it. Who I am in the politics of sustainability, the politics of hope, the politics of enlightenment, the politics of nonviolence, the only politics that will create real change is the notion that who I am is as important as what I do. Who I am while I'm doing something. My consciousness is as important as my actions. Because we're in the 21st century now. The paradigm is no longer mechanistic. No longer do we think that, oh, you can change the world by tweaking pieces of the machine. We've passed the Newtonian paradigm. The British physicist James Jean said, turns out the world is not one big machine. The world is one big thought. So the idea is 
that internal change produces external change, that who you are is one, one aspect of that is a line that is Martin Luther King. You have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. So if you go out there with anger, you're not going to help create a peaceful world. Now, there is moral outrage, which I don't believe is anger. But that's why when I ran, and I'm sure this is true of other people in these situations as well. In fact, I know it is. It took me a year to just do the inner work of forgiving myself and others. Hmm. Forgiving myself for the things I did that made it too easy for them to make fun of me, made it too easy for them to come after me. So I had to forgive myself or forgive myself in the times when I felt I could have spoken back, when Anderson Cooper said that I should have said, right? I had to go through all that to know, it can't blame it on him, Marianne, you made it easy for him or whatever. Um, I had to do a year of that. Um, I think this is true in life, but particularly true if you're in public. Everybody falls. People are watching to see how you get back up. You know, Hemingway said, we're all broken. Some people grow stronger in the broken places. I saw this even when I ran for Congress. It was funny. I would be going around L.A., and people would be so compassionate. But then they're looking at you. Understandably, is she getting back up, or does she have a chip on her shoulder, and is she kind of pathetic and bitter? People, how you fail is important in life. And I think the only ultimate failure is what you fail to learn from. So not only in response to that, but in response to everything we go through in life. How am I doing as a person? How's my integrity today? How's my, am I impeccable today to the best of my ability? Was I generous today? That is as important as what's my public policy mm. on anything. And I think people are subconsciously, people subconsciously know everything. And I think in politics as much as in anything else, people are registering what kind of person they think you are. And there are a lot of invisible cues on that. There are a lot of ways they're just picking up, do I really in my gut feel good about her? When I ran, when people actually heard me, that was good. Mm -hmm. What the DNC and others like that were successful in doing was making people think, oh, I'm too smart to go here, a new age crystal lady in that case. They knew what they were doing. They, they will do whatever it takes to get you out of the conversation. The system has a predetermined agenda. They have a predetermined set of people that they think um, are the uh, correct uh, 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 deliverers yeah. of that agenda. And anyone else, they, they do everything possible to get you out of the conversation. There is um, an art form in Japanese aesthetics called kintsugi. Yeah. So kintsugi art would be, um, it's often based around ceramics, like so a coffee mug, for example, More, mostly tea there so they would actually smash a piece of ceramics and then reconstitute it using gold gold molten gold and if you've ever seen one of these reassembled piece of ceramics or tea caddy it's the most like marvelous looking thing and what they call those veins that are made from the gold They're called precious scars. Jean Houston talks about your sacred wounds. I think that's yeah. really true. I have learned as much from my failures as from my successes. And um, somebody was talking about AOC recently, who I do think potentially I could see her being president in 2036 or whatever. When somebody talks about her running now, it's like, no, she needs more life experience. 
She needs more failures as well as more successes. There's something that comes with more experience. precious scars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because yeah. failure humbles you. It's kind of like I've always been fascinated. I'm so fascinated uh, by the story of FDR. If he hadn't gotten polio, I mean, he was tall, dark, rich, handsome, Roosevelt, for God's sake. I mean, he had everything. I And he was known for being a pretty smug, callow guy. Mm. Not after polio took him down. Mm. And it's one of those well, questions of history. Would he have been the man we needed him to be had he not gone through that and been humbled by that and suffered from that? Suffering gives you x-ray vision into the suffering of others. And nobody is an appropriate leader in the world today who doesn't recognize really deep in their bones how much unnecessary suffering is going on out there. Absolutely. I mean, if it is very hard to practice um, karuna or compassion mm-hmm. to uh, identify someone else's suffering as your own mm-hmm. without having suffered yourself. And... Um, Chris Dostoevsky wrote, are we worthy of our suffering? And Viktor Frankl pulled that forward in his um, memorable tome as, you know, one of the three great ways that we find meaning in life. We find meaning in our work, in this connection and relationship, and most difficult in our suffering. And um, it is how we can pull the pieces of our broken lives back together that is creates humility and creates character. And, uh, you know, yeah, if there's one thing that actually I do, you know, and we won't go into an extended conversation about Biden, but he has clearly, um, experienced suffering in his life. And I think, he is at his very, very best when you see him in those moments of compassion, um, you know, where he's giving a kid a hug or something, you know. I, all right. Yes. So as long as you went there. Okay. And first of all, I want to say that for me, always in the periods of my suffering, it's may I become a better woman because of this. Mm-hmm. I think that's the issue. Whatever the situation may, may make me a better person. Now, as far as Biden's suffering which is so true, and the loss of a child, the loss of his first wife, and that car crash. I mean, it's immeasurable suffering. But, you know, when it comes to democratic, when it comes to conservative versus liberal values, um, the issue is personal compassion versus public compassion. Yes, in a one-on-one situation, President Biden has displayed profound compassion and empathy that touches us all. He has shown, however, zero compassion for the children of Yemen who are being bombed by, by, the, uh, by the Saudis. He, he showed almost zero compassion for the women uh, activists in Afghanistan who the U.S. failed to prioritize in, in, the escape, in, in, in escaping uh, the Taliban when we made our exit. So, yes, and I appreciate his personal empathy and compassion but to me, that's a little bit in the same category as, wow, Reagan seemed like a nice guy. Bush seemed like a nice guy. Uh, ask guy the Iraqis, Yeah, ask <laughs> the Iraqis what a nice guy. Um, a whole generation lost uh, in Iraq, what a nice guy George Bush was. I think Americans tend to see a bit of a personality 
and really, to be honest, make too big a deal about that. It's public policy uh, uh, by which we should judge uh, our president's public policy. Fair and enough. the empathy and compassion, the absence or the presence of, uh, of empathy and compassion in public policy. Yeah, fair enough. So as a way to bookend our conversation, mm -hmm. do you feel confident that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice? Well, it took three days, the proverbial three days, uh, but the crucifixion did lead to the resurrection. It took the proverbial 40 years, but the uh, slavery uh, of the Israelites uh, by the Pharaoh did ultimately lead to their deliverance and entrance into the promised land. On an ultimate level, God always gets the final say. Do I believe one day? Yes, I do. We will get there. The Course in Miracles says it's not up to you what you learn, merely whether you learn through joy or through pain. So do I believe that ultimately, uh, yes, we will all be an enlightened, loving species? Yes. However, we should not kid ourselves. Even though historically we have had a, um, a tendency to self-correct, we answered abolition, uh, slavery with abolition, institutionalized suppression of women with the women's suffragette movement, segregation with the civil rights movement. It remains to be seen, however, whether or not our generation rises up as others have done to create the, the necessary pushback against overreach by capital, which is the, it's, the, mm -hmm. it's just the newest iteration of the same thing. We need to toughen up, Jeff. We're yeah. a little precious, a little precious. You know, I, somebody said to me one day when I was whining about all this, he said, toughen up, buttercup. And it was exactly what I needed to hear at that time. So will it in our in our generation, in our lifetime, or even our children's lifetime, I'm sorry, it remains to be seen. God cannot do for us what he cannot do through us. Um, some fundamental shifts have to occur. On the other hand, and I was talking to Jacob, who works with you, and we were talking about this idea that once those shifts happen, they can happen very quickly. It's right. not midnight yet. It's the 11th hour, but it's not midnight yet. So my answer to your question is, it's like when, when environmentalists say, don't worry, Marianne, because the earth actually will be okay. It just might have to, you know, kick off the predatory species for 200 or 300,000 years. <laughs> no, there's not a laughing matter. The amount of suffering, human and other species, the level of destructiveness that would accompany that scenario is so, it's immeasurable. Yeah. It is so horrifying. And I would hope that we will all get to the point of realizing, no, 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 that will not happen on our watch. If we get there, if we really take in the level of horror that will occur on this, on this planet, if we let this thing go down that road and into that dystopia, I think we will switch into the people we need to be. I've seen, you know, in my career, Jeff, I've worked up close and personal with people in trouble in their lives for decades. And sometimes it's when you get the terrible news that you have to say, wait a minute, let me, let me think about this. And then you find out how noble, strong, and powerful you can actually be. That potential exists. But the answer to your question is open question. Yeah. Well, you and I both have experience with many people who are in AA, for example. Mm -hmm. And it is that rock bottom place from which there can be growth. Or death. 
Or I mean, come on. I mean, that, that, you know, when, when it comes to the alcoholic, when it comes to the drug addict, people intervene. That's the whole mm -hmm. point of an intervention That's is when true. you realize if this continues, this person could die. We have to get out of our magical thinking about democracy. If it continues this way, this thing could die. Rock bottom did, does not lead, in the case of every addict, to sobriety. <laughs> Sometimes it leads to the overdose. Sometimes true. it leads yeah. to cirrhosis. So let's not over-romanticize <laughs> the story there, right? Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, I suppose my point is, is that humanity seems to be very crisis-driven. That yeah. That's when we seem to act. Um, but what qualifies as a crisis now is a head-scratcher. Right. That's the problem because before, in, in situations before, you know, Americans are very good with a to-do list. We see the problem, tell us what to do. Get rid of the Nazis. Check. Get rid of the Japanese right. Imperial Army. Check. Or pass a, an amendment. Check. Abolish slavery. Yeah. Check. This is a cancer that is metastasized. Right. And the system is predicated on people not totally getting that the, we're, we're the frogs in this boiling water and somehow thinking it's never going to kill us. Right. Um, Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after exhausting every other option. <laughs> I know, that's my favorite quote. And historically, that's true. Yeah. Uh, we are often late getting there. But when we do get there, historically, once we do, we slam it like nobody's business. I just think we need to slam it. Here's to slamming it. Here's to slamming it. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne. Thank you so much for everything, Jeff. Okay, to be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Marianne Williamson. If you're interested in the connection between relationships and spirituality, then be sure to sign up for Marianne's commune course titled Relationships. You can take the first four days for free by signing up at onecommune.com relationships. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. Check it out at onecommune.com. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week. Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>